Today's episode is sponsored by Alliance Leisure, the UK's leading leisure development specialist. Over the last 30 years, Alliance has worked with numerous local authorities to design and develop community sustainable leisure environments that encourage active lives, promote community cohesion, and tackle health inequalities. With a diverse portfolio of more than 220 leisure developments ranging from single site projects to multi-million pound complete leisure portfolio transformations, Alliance Leisure Services can be procured through the UK Leisure Framework. The framework is open to all public sector organisations in the UK. For more information, visit allianceleisure.co.uk. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, financial sustainability is probably the most important conversation happening in local government right now. And we have an absolute expert on the podcast today. Um, somebody who for a long time I've uh, you know watched their work and been very impressed by and somebody who I think can give some real insights into financial sustainability. Uh, Paul Dossett is partner and head of public sector assurance at Grant Thornton and Paul I'm just so grateful for you to take the time to come on the podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine Matt and uh, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Amazing well let's dive straight in. What is the current picture of financial sustainability in local government? So the current picture is quite challenging. I think if you look at the build up, if you look at the austerity era, one thing that um, marks that was very low inflation. So councils, whatever challenges they may have had, were able to plan effectively based on on low inflation. Obviously, the inflation spikes uh, in the last 18 months or so has made a real difference to that capacity uh, to deliver. And although 23-24 saw an increase in funding for government grants, the reality is that local authority costs, even before we get on to demand issues, have spiralled in that period. And virtually all councils I speak to are looking at having an overspend for the 23-24 year. You then project that into 24-25 budgets and councils will have both difficult choices to make, but also will have to tackle this ongoing high inflation and the really important thing to think about inflation, it's not a one size fits all CPI, RPI type figure that hits local government across the board. They have very specific inflations, some related to capital, which is much higher, but even things such as the national living wage up increase that was introduced recently, those things directly impact local government finances by far more than they ever uh, can raise via council tax increases uh, or by government grants. So 24, five and beyond looks also very challenging for the sector. It is so challenging, isn't it? Because you know everyone who I speak with and work with in local government turns up every day to try and do the best for the community. And it just feels as if they've got their hands tied behind their back. It's almost impossible to imagine a situation financially whereby they can, can deliver the continuity of service um, in the current financial model and that leads on to the next point so while councils cannot go bankrupt they instead issue these section 114 notices and we've seen significantly more of these issued over the past couple of years we won't go into specifics but we've seen a lot more of that are section 114 notices the right answer to solving financial sustainability issues paul so i think the answer to that is a yes and a no so they they're the right answer in some cases in terms of the section 151 officer exercising their statutory responsibilities appropriately because the council has got itself into a financial position often due to poor decision making previously 
um, that has made their financial decisions unsustainable. So in that sense, in that sense, that's the right option to take. And in that environment, clearly, there are benefits in, in tight spending control. So that's the positive of, of, of the 114s. Of course, the downside is it doesn't necessarily fix things longer term. And local authorities have a, a high degree of statutory function that they need to spend the money on. So you cut, it's not like you take out 50 million or something like that at a stroke of a pen. So the reality is the system as I said in my earlier answer, is creaking, longer term funding challenges are there. And whilst to some degree, the 114 is issued so far, you could point to specific issues at those individual councils, that doesn't mean it will be immune uh, forever to some councils who haven't, you know, haven't taken uh, perhaps risky decisions, and you'll end up with those councils declaring a 114, and, and the reality is the declaration of 114 won't solve those longer term funding problems. And I think this comes down to the key point around demand. You know, as a society, there is an increasing amount of demand across uh, particularly those statutory responsibilities across children's, adults, homelessness. And I, I guess the question really is, with that increase, is the sector's financial position sustainable enough to manage these increasing demand led pressures? So, so my view is that the answer to that is no, because if you look at the the ways in which local authorities could raise income to, to meet those cost pressures, they essentially have three methods, council tax, uh, council tax and business rates, uh, government grant and um, additional income they could raise sometimes for investments and, and other income sources. The reality is the council tax referendum caps increases to 5%, including the social care precept. It's difficult to imagine, given the, the strain on wider public finances, government grants increasing by by a you know by a, a rate that matches those demand pressures. So that leaves it over to additional income. And the reality is at a more prosaic level, local authorities aren't realistically going to increase their fees and charges that excessively because then, then demand will go down. And of course, given some of the challenges in the sector about investments, local authorities are not particularly incentivized at the moment to go and out and use that method uh, to, to raise income. So in reality, if you're looking at a overall window of income that says you could probably increase income by say up to 5% in totality at the most, if your cost pressures are more and, and what we're seeing from these demand-led services is not only will there be an inherent pay cost pressure that will be at least 5%, if not more, when you increase demand and you have to use agency staff and all sorts of other uh, options to, to provide those statutory services, your inflation is going to be way over 5%. So by a natural balance, you're going to be overspending every year unless there's a, a solution that comes in to deal with this. I think that's the hard thing as well. And I do want to unpick a bit more about what you said there because it's really, really interesting. Um, but I want to go first back just to the point around the statutory responsibilities. And I think that's something that has to be assessed at a, a, a national level because yeah. it's simply not sustainable to have councils looking after children's and adult services and that level of responsibility based on the current funding format. The two don't don't marry. There's not, you know, there's not a synergy there. And, you know, I, I've, I've I spoke to a lot of chief executives around this, around 
you know, feeling very torn between the play-shaped ambitions and their care responsibilities. Mm. And there has to be a change in the funding model because the alternative, and you reached on there, and it's a really interesting point, is commercial investments. Mm. Um, and we've seen an increase in the sector of this over recent years. Um, and I guess the question I have for you, really, Paul, is is why have we seen this? You know, what are the risks associated with these alternative investment approaches? So I think we've seen it for, for two reasons. One, one, the sort of austerity being a, uh, a, vi- a problem for local authorities and their funding and having to raise income by additional sources. And clearly, with local authorities borrowing power and spending power, from a capital perspective, you they have the they have the cash available, had the cash available to to invest in in all sorts of things, you know, um, you know, retail, leisure, all sorts of other facilities. So they had that power to do so, and of course, good investments do will will get you far more money than than leave it in the bank. So you can obviously make uh, in good times, you know, up to ten percent or whatever it is in terms of return. And obviously, central government uh, under the 2011 Act, the Localism Act, effectively empowered local authorities to take decisions that were in the benefits or, or for their area. So there was an encouragement, albeit tacit rather than direct, to local authorities to to focus on raising additional income and effectively tried to wean them off reliance solely on, on government grant or wholly on government grant. So local authorities went down that route and clearly it it has to be said some of those investment decisions have been good decisions financially and have led to good returns for councils and are built into the base budget of of many councils and have been for a long time and have delivered for a long time so i think that needs to be said first of all but in terms of uh, levels of risk Clearly, any investment you make in, in any society, any form of your life, whether it's personal or, or, or in the public context, um, you need to do your proper due diligence. And what we found is that some local authorities did not do enough due diligence about what they were investing in. They did not set aside the finances in their minimum revenue provision. Um, that's been quite a common feature. They hoped that they could effectively pay back the borrowing by by raising more income than uh, than the cost of the borrowing effectively. But that is a risky strategy because you can never be certain over what will be a 25, 50 year period, whether you can do that or not. Um, and there's been other you know, failures of due diligence in terms of accounting treatment. Some of these some of these I mean, buying a supermarket um, or buying a retail estate from an accounting point of view is relatively straightforward. But investing, you know, borrowing money to invest in particular types of financial instruments raises a whole re- series of accounting issues. And what we've seen across the sector that for those com- really complex deals, local authorities didn't take proper accounting advice up front to say this is the accounting implications of your um, decision. And we've seen both in, in, in audits that we do, but in, in, across across the sector. You know, the accounting has unpicked some of these deals. So it's really quite important that local authorities take proper due diligence on these decisions. It's a balance because some people have got it right uh, and a minority have not got it right. Um, and I think the most important thing for me, though, is a local authority is ultimately there to provide services to the public. 
So that in, that, that additional income should be um, an adjunct to managing your budget within the, the the sort of service provision you have to do, rather than the be all and end all. And I think we've seen some councils, particularly smaller ones, skew their positioning uh, quite radically, where their borrowing outstrips their spending by a considerable margin, uh, and that always going to bring a, a level of risk. It's it's really refreshing, Paul, to 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 to, to hear you start that kind of observation with a uh, a commentary on some of the successes that have happened in the sector. Because one of the things sometimes I think is difficult is the entire investment approach was demonised by mainstream media, which I don't think was fair. And I think the way you've just described that was very balanced. And there have been some councils that it hasn't worked out for. I think as well, it's the context as well, as you said there rightly, why this first started happening. You know, because central government wanted to say to local government i want you to, to to not be reliant so much on our kind of our funding agreements that we're giving to you on a base i want you to go out there and be proactive and i think there was just a, for everyone listening at home there was a desperation you know from councils where was what we're seeing now is the consequence of that you know councils had to try and find extra money but you're right sometimes the governance and the risk management wasn't where it needed to be um and it's just yeah it's it's so important now in particular because at the moment yes it's not encouraged at the moment but you know, who knows what the, the future may hold. I guess, Paul, you know, as an expert, you know, I'd like your advice really here. Good governance is clearly a key to good financial management of public funds. What constitutes good governance within a council? So I'd split that into three areas. So first, first and foremost, it's the members. So the members have to recognise that being an elected member is a huge responsibility, but it gives them a corporate responsibility. So whether they're the leader of the council or an elected mayor, or whether they're an opposition back bench member, all of you have that responsibility to, to promote the best interests of the council. And that means to engage fully with the what the council is doing, the big decisions it makes in particular, the budget setting, how it deals with MRP, those other types of things, investments, you need to engage with that. So I think that needs to be part of it, the start point. Everyone recognises their corporate responsibility as a local authority member. Secondly, I think there's a piece about behaviour and culture amongst members. And I think, you know, the national political dialogue has, has perhaps declined in terms of, of, of what it was when I was uh, starting my career. Um, and there's a bit too much bad behaviour and uh, in in politics now that that actually dilutes what what members are there to do. And so I think behaviour uh, towards officers is respectful behaviour towards their officers is really important and towards each other. If you get the right culture, you can always have politics. Politics is is what it is about. So you could disagree with your other your opponents. But if it's done uh, with a tone of respect and appropriateness, that 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 helps lift the whole sort of political narrative. So I think that's what members need to do. In terms of officers, I think the most important thing is that the three statutory corporate officers, the head of paid service, the Section 151 officer and the monitoring officer work in collaboration and they all recognise and live out their statutory responsibilities which are well set out in, in local government law and that they make sure that their job is to keep the council safe from inappropriate decision making that is their not their only job but that is their job 
Uh, and I think we've seen examples where that hasn't happened effectively. But having those three people work really effectively together is, is a good example. And I've actually seen that work well at a council that has many, many challenges, but because those statutory officers are working effectively, it sort of kept the council safe from, from going down a, a, a dangerous path. And then I think you've got the other, other sort of focuses, such as the work of internal audit, um, it's really important because that, that is an absolutely prime supporter of good governance. And so we need that to be strong and we need that to be invested in. Um, and obviously, external audit is another area which needs to be strong and which needs to be listened to. So one of one of the, our key uh, points, and it was absolutely a key point in the Redmond review, was that local authority audit annual audit reports should be presented to full council so that all members, not just audit committee members, are fully aware of what an external body, the external auditor, is saying about their arrangements. And if you do all of those things, you'll be in a place where you, it doesn't mean nothing bad will happen, but it puts you in, it puts you in the right starting place to address the challenges you face. There is so, I mean, that is, I, I love that. There's there's three points I want to kind of just go back mm. firstly to the to the members. I think it's really difficult at the moment because, you know, I think in modern society, it's never been more difficult than it is now to be a local government politician. Mm. You're so open to criticism, but it is obviously a huge responsibility that goes into it. And obviously, I completely agree with you. I think the bit around the offices, I think it's really interesting. I was reading the MJ about, you know, the particularly the importance, obviously, Section 151, obviously, Chief Executive Head of Paid Service. But the monitoring officers, you know, are finding it difficult sometimes to to regulate and to kind of to, to hold the councils on the kind of straight and narrow. And that, that's really challenging. And I, I guess that's a cultural piece for the head of paid service to really embrace. Um, you know, it's it's and an audit. Audit it's I mean, there's, you know, uh, we could do a whole episode and I hope we do in the future around audit. But you know, it's just, you know, when there is so much demand on people's time and, you know, we've got such a backlog, you kind of there going, the actual function itself clearly is absolutely important, but it's it's how that kind of, how we get to a point of yeah. sensibility with that process. But Paul, my last question for you really is, you know, you're incredibly knowledgeable, but where does this passion come from? Because it comes through in absolute abundance. Where does that, where does this stem from for you? So um, many years ago, back in the 1980s, I I applied for a job at the then Audit, Audit Commission. And what just attracted me, because I was always interested in politics and I did a history degree. So I've got a, a, a long a long term interest in how politics works. But the job was about it was sort of be, it was marketed as as protecting taxpayers funds, looking after public money. But. What I learned over over many, many years is it's the variety and the interest and the different things you see, the good practice you see, the not so good practice you see, and the desire to make sure that taxpayers' funds are spent appropriately has been my driving passion uh, for, for, for my entire career. Because I always say to uh, new people that join us as, as public sector auditors, um, if you invested a company, uh, not forgetting the nuances of pension funds and things like that. It's your money, you choose to invest in it. That's your decision. In public sector, we are all invested in it. We have to put our money in through the taxation system, and that's the way the system works. So we are there to protect It's part of our role, um, and it's obviously part of the role of those statutory officers as well, to, to protect public funds and make sure money is, 
is well spent. So that has been my driving passion throughout my career. I tell you what, Paul, if I could bottle you up and send you out to all the councils, it'd be amazing. But um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great to have you on to discuss this really important topic. Great. Thanks, Matt. You've been lucky enough at home to be listening to Paul Dossett, partner and head of public sector assurance at Grant Thornton, discussing sustainability within the finances of local government. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give it a like, give it a share and log back in for more episodes later in the week. Today's episode is sponsored by the UK Leisure Framework, the UK's only dedicated leisure framework. The UK Leisure Framework allows for the direct appointment of a development partner for scoping, design and construction of leisure centres and sports facilities. The framework is available to all UK public sector organisations and has completed over 100 projects to date. For more information, visit leisureframework.co.uk.